Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I want to say, here are all the reasons why you should stay tuned to hear my interview with Jeffrey Marsh. They're one of the world's foremost commentators on non-binary identity in America. You'll hear about what hating someone has to do with trying to nail jello to a wall, what boundaries really mean, how non-attachment may not work how you think it does, and yeah, gender. To think that seven, it's now 7.8 billion people on a planet would fit into one box or another is pretty audacious, don't you think? (laughs) What a word, yes, that is audacious. But really, what it all boils down to is that Jeffrey Marsh loves you, and you're gonna love them too. I'm Kyone Wolf, that's coming up next on, well, you already know, right after NPR News Headlines. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The first time I heard the voice of Jeffrey Marsh was when they were on the conservative talk show Unfiltered with Dennis Michael Lynch in October of 2016. All right, welcome back. Are you ready for this word? Genderqueer. Haven't heard that word, uh, I don't know, ever, or in a while anyway. I, I don't know. This, one of, great so far. this is one of those. This is one of those blocks where you know I'm just out of my complete element. Uh, I am joined now by Jeffrey Marsh, LGBTQ activist and author of the new book How to Be You. Um, okay, so as you can tell, the host's discomfort was palpable, and Jeffrey, who's one of the world's foremost experts on non-binary identity. Sitting across from him in this beautiful fuchsia dress with smoky eye makeup on and sporting a little bit of beard stubble. Now, it's not unreasonable to imagine that a scene like this would lead to tension. But what struck me about Jeffrey was how totally differently they treated the host, who I saw as adversarial. Here's another clip from the interview. Jeffrey had been explaining how Growing up, they didn't really have the language for what they felt like, non-binary or gender queer or gender fluid. And well, here's Dennis. Okay, so so let, let's I, I gotta take this in pieces, man. Yes. So so Person. So, so so you like boys. Do you, you still said, like do you, you still said like... I have to take it in pieces, man. Yeah. Person. Person. Okay. It's a whole new world, Dennis. Yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 this may be one of those worlds. And no, no just you don't have understand. to join me. It's sort of like trying to, to ask me to do calculus. I'm never going to do it. And I don't know if I really should put a lot of time in learning calculus. That's how I feel about running in flat shoes. Don't ask me to do it. Okay. So, so I'm I, 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 do you still have uh, your manhood? Hey, for the record, Jeffrey was polite, but just a quick note, that's never okay to ask anybody ever. So now you know. This hour, Jeffrey Marsh joins me to talk about this interview and gender and love and their life and frankly, 
They gave me a lot of perspective on my life, too. Jeffrey is a viral TikTok and Instagram star. They're a public speaker, a life coach, and they're the author of How to Be You. Stop trying to be someone else and start living your life. Okay, I want to play you one more part of the interview where Dennis, the host, asked this. So if you don't identify as a man or a woman, what exactly are you? Great question. And I hope that I never find out. I asked Jeffrey why they said that. (laughs) Why the heck did I say that on conservative cable news? Because people want answers. To think that seven, it's now 7.8 billion people on a planet, creatures on a planet would fit into one box or another, would be able to give you one answer or the other is pretty audacious, don't you think? (laughs) What a word. Yes, that is audacious. And so I, just in the moment, I was thinking, I don't want this conversation to be at that level. I want this conversation to be at a, you know, it's not a contest or anything, but at a higher level, meaning a more spiritual level, where we could talk about the quest to discuss something as wild, beautiful, slippery, vibrant, and cute as human gender. I had interviewed the head of the transgender medicine program at Middlesex Hospital down here in Connecticut. Her name is Katie Tierney. And she was talking about gender identity. And she said, you know, you may think of a man and you may picture, uh, you know, someone with a beard and a suit and he's tall and he's broad. And you may think of a woman and you may picture someone slender in a dress and she's got makeup on and long hair. But in other cultures and other parts of the world, well, that's not masculine at all. And, and that's not feminine at all. So congratulations. We are all gender nonconforming. Indeed. And there's a broader conversation that we can concentrate on. So gendered means so much to so many. But often I find people don't get to thinking beyond, gosh, what you wear, who's supposed to take out the trash, who's better at math. Uh, you know, the cultural sort of, um, gosh, should we just go there? The cultural misogyny and queerphobia that's built into everyone's approach to how to express gender. And we don't even really have the language for it. I've heard you talk about how, you know, when the language for gender started forming, you know, there weren't people like you or people who were who knew that they were gender nonconforming, gender queer, all the different words we're coming up with now, gender fluid, they weren't around to contribute to that language. And so I'd, I'd like to hear your reflections on that. Like, what kind of language are we dealing with? And how is that affecting our progress in terms of accepting it within ourselves and within other people? Of course. I mean, I think a perfect example is the studies, the sociological studies that have been done about romance languages and how in many of them, the objects have a gender. So, you know, they've done these blind studies where they will ask, you know, what gender is a pencil? And people answer the gender that's in their native language when it's a pencil. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? And we in English don't have that particular nuance, but we have plenty of ways that we talk about being a judge or being a pastor or ways that we talk about groups of people, ways that we talk about what it means to play sports, receive care, go to school. Uh, we're heavy laden with stereotypes, with linguistic boxes that we can't seem to think our way out of because we are thinking in English. And you know, there's some nuance I wanted to add to what you said, because you said it so brilliantly. Thank you. And I think people like me, non-binary people, probably, you know, because we're humans, we probably were around, but we just weren't given power to assist in creating a language that was inclusive. That's not what humanity was up to at the time. And now we've got gender non-conforming, non-binary. It's like atheist, anti-natalist, right? And so the only way we can talk about ourselves is with the non, the anti, the a. Yeah, we are. So, ooh, I'm so glad you said that. Almost nobody asks me about that. And I think that eventually words like gender queer, gender fluid, uh, that these words will take over the term non-binary, because we'll no longer want to refer back to the binary to describe who we are. When I've thought about it in a linear way, on one side is male, on the other side is female, what I believe is male, what I see is female, right? Mm -hmm. But I saw this great tweet where you're talking about it being more like a color wheel, you know, like it's not a line graph. You, you tweeted, when you say gender is a spectrum, you picture a line with a man being real on one end and woman being real on the other and everyone else in relation to and in between. Gender is not that. Gender is a blob, a nebula, an ice cream sundae. Will you flesh that out for folks who maybe hadn't really thought of it that way? Yeah, I'm very, very pro-freedom which there is a segment of popu of the population who sort of owns the idea of freedom in America. And it's always shocked me that non-binary people have not been embraced by the conservative movement. And I am so, <laughs> I know that's a very weird thing to say, but a movement that values individual freedom and the freedom to express yourself and like a pioneer cowboy kind of spirit. But when you talk about gender, when anybody talks about gender is a spectrum, what I try to counsel them against is broadening their perspective enough to go from binary to trinary. So now we've, if, if you're thinking about spectrum in the classic way that most of us were taught, You've gone from two boxes, M and F, to three boxes, M, F, and in between. <laughs> and what I'm trying to do is help people melt the walls of their boxes. It's very different. And it's freeing. And hopefully having loosey-goosey gender roles uh, can help everybody feel more comfortable. It also reminds me of the... When I hear people say, people who are non-binary, 
or people who are trans, and we can talk about that language as well. But when I hear people say, I was born in the wrong body, how do you respond to that? I think back when I was growing up in the 80s and people are, people were on Dr. Phil, I think that phrase came about to help people sympathize and empathize with people like us. And to get people to go from murdering us to empathizing with us by saying something like, I'm born in the wrong body, I think that's a good step. Today, though, 2021, it feels to me like the phrase has outlived its usefulness. And I want to acknowledge that there are people who do talk that way, and I'm not trying to take anything away from them. And if that suits your experience, then enjoy yourself. (laughs) That sounds lovely. I don't mean that sarcastically at all. And to say born in the wrong body upholds a standard of what bodies need to be in order to be acceptable. And I'm desperately trying to undermine that. I think you're doing a good job. You're you're on this radio show and people are going to think about it differently. Can I say something about that? Yeah. I'm honored to be here. It speaks to you, your heart, that you invited me to speak. People like me are not usually given a voice. And even today in 2021, there's, you know, the stigma. But it's also like, you know, what? (laughs) I'm not speaking, I love myself, as you know. I'm not speaking disparagingly about myself. But many people encounter someone like me and they're like, what's going on over there? What is that? And, you know, we've shifted from outright hatred, violence, although that still happens, toward people like me, and more into, um, I don't know what's going on there, and I'd rather not make a mistake, so I'm just not going to deal with it. And any way you slice it, people like me are isolated. We're left out. So thanks for including me. You're welcome. You just reminded me of when I saw an interview with you about how the transit system in New York changed their greetings to say passengers and riders instead of ladies and gentlemen. And you were asked how that made you feel. And you said, included. And such a simple thing. And takes nothing away from the ladies and the gentlemen of this world. (laughs) If we just use a different word that includes people like me too. Yeah. I used to to run a storytelling show and and other events. and, And I used to say, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between. And now I realize that I can even improve on that. I could just say, welcome, friends, or I could just say, welcome. (laughs) Amen. You know, and it's it's, um, in those like comedy club, cabaret spaces, the whole joke of ladies and gentlemen and those who have yet to make up their mind. You know, I think they were going for humor. But the joke's not funny anymore. It's 2021. (laughs) We could do better. We could do better and be more inclusive, yeah. Yeah. Today we're talking with Jeffrey Marsh, activist, social media influencer, and the author of How to Be You. Stop trying to be someone else and start living your life. When we get back. So a hater comes at me and they want to feel powerful. 
if you don't let them feel that, they will flail. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, you got lucky. Really, really lucky because your ears are being treated to the voice and the ideas and humor and love of Jeffrey Marsh. Jeffrey's the author of How to Be You Stop Trying to Be Someone Else and Start Living Your Life. And they're also one of the world's foremost experts on non binary identities. They've also been a student and teacher of Zen Buddhism for over 20 years. And I wanted to talk with them about that. Jeffrey's book is full of Buddhist fundamentals. They're woven through stories about what they've been through and and answers to questions they often get from people, especially young people who are trying to make sense of this world. There's a part in the book where they write about our reactions to praise, to punishment, to other people's opinions of us. As we're forming our opinion of ourselves, which, of course, is a lifelong practice, what do we make of what other people think of who and what we are? I asked them, what does that have to do with Buddhism? Um, I'm going to give you the ultimate Buddhist answer. What do you see in that? (laughs) I've started learning about Buddhism. I've been working with Sam Harris's app, Waking Up. And um, I'm really only like three weeks into it, but I'm going through a divorce and I'm trying to find some uh, ways to stay centered. Because as you can imagine, it's very easy to think about the past and to worry about the future. And I feel like now is such a um, a tender, delicate time. And I don't want to mess it up. And I want to make the most of it too. I want to be able to grow through this. And I've found that what I've learned in this baby stage of understanding Buddhism is that feelings come and go. And that even I as a conscious being am going to come and go, do come and go. And when I read that in your book about praise and punishment, it felt right in line with just like emotions. These are not only things that come and go, but what do other people's opinions have to do with who I am and what I'm trying to do? And then I think, well, who am I? I have nothingness. Ah! So I'm still learning, but that's that was my reaction to that. No, yes. Well, I want to ask you about one specific part of what you said, and it wasn't even what you said. It was how you said it. When you said, I'm going through a divorce, your voice changed. And I sensed some emotion there. Can you say a little bit about that? What's the emotion? Deep sadness. Yeah. Deep sadness. And then I think about attachment. You know, my wife, I like you, I grew up thinking I'd never be able to get married. And um, now I'm losing it. So I think about attachment. And May I ask you about attachment? 
<laughs> what are you going to say? Uh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a voice in your head that's telling you you shouldn't be attached. Is that the Buddhist ideal you have running around in your head? Yeah. Yeah. And this person was your wife and you have a voice in your head saying you're weak or something for being attached to that person. Is that is that what is happening? You know when you say it out loud like that, I Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um this is why I talk so much about emotions. So the instructive part about praise and, you know, other people having a negative opinion about you is that it will point you back to what you think about you. Meaning, that's the only thing I can do anything about. If somebody hates me and is judging me, and it hooks into something internal, a way I treat myself, that's really the only thing I can do. Do you know how many followers I have? A lot. (laughs) I tried for years to please every one of them. I was like a traumatized, you know, it's like a traumatized kid response. I was people-pleasing, but I was trying to do it on the scale of hundreds of thousands of people. You can't do that. That's what I learned. (laughs) So what changed for you? What was that moment for you? What changed for you? Was Was it one day? Was it a conversation? Was it a particularly strong cup of coffee? Like, what happened that shifted you to being like, f*** it? Well, it wasn't still to this day is not necessarily it because I take it to mean that I don't care. But it was the realization that I do deeply care. And I'll tell you a prime, prime example for me. Um, A lot of people are attracted to my posts who've been traumatized. And a lot of traumatized people will try to police others into being the most inclusive that they can be. So what I mean by that is, because I I know of which I speak because I did it for years. Um, (laughs) So I'll get people who are liberal left and very inclusive, wonderful, beautiful people who come into my comments and say, you can't use the word queer because you have to include people that are that are traumatized by the word queer and you can't, you know, that there's a set of rules that they have going on. And I'm, I'm absolutely, you'll understand by the end of my story, I am not dissing anybody. I, I, you know, I'm filled with love. But what I realized was when I was able to put aside my own stuff, my own stuff about that, I just had this intense wave of compassion that someone would care enough that someone else might read what I had written and be upset by that thing. And so they wanted me to accommodate that third person. And I also realized there's no way. I mean, it's just mathematically is not possible for me to accommodate everyone. And if there's an important thing that I need to say, I, I, 
I had better say it with as much freedom and inclusivity as I can and not pretend that I have all the answers. On your social media channels, you have such a robust presence. And I'm wondering, of all the videos that you've done, what have been some that have gotten people's hearts all aflutter? What have been some that have gotten some pretty big reactions? Well, I tell you, my most popular videos are when I respond to hate comments. And specifically, since I am the artiste, I'll let you in on part of the secret. It's when I elevate that conversation, like we were discussing before. So it is one thing to respond to a hateful comment and argue on the level of the comment back at the person. I think the world needs that uh, to a certain extent, but that's not my jam. Instead, I'll put a comment on the screen that says, you know, people like you are predators in bathrooms. (laughs) And I'll begin instead, not to argue that specific point, but instead to discuss why hate happens. How we get to this point where even within a movement where we both want to be out from under the thumb of the patriarchy, why we're fighting each other. And that those, those videos seem to uh, really, really resonate with people. Yeah, there's a part of your book as well about when people display hatred, what's the problem with that? for them. What's the problem for them? Their soul is eating them out from the inside out. That's the problem for them. We tend not to hold haters accountable enough, in my opinion. So I spent decades, I may not look it, but I'm 44. And I spent decades looking at hate And what that really meant to me was seeing how, why haters hate, how hate happens, what's going on for them, what projection means, what, you know, why it's not true. But basically, I realized, I had a huge moment where I realized, you want me to do more work? Speaking like, you know, to the universe. You want me to take another class? because everyone hates me? You want me to do a workshop? (laughs) You want me to read another book? You want me to look again at hate? And then my all of my activism became about teaching people the tools to hold haters accountable instead of that constant spotlight that the victim needs to deal with, look at, change, become strong, you know, whatever, around hate. Can you give me an example of of that practice of holding haters accountable for the everyday person that encounters it that that's like, do I have to do this work? What does accountability look like? Yeah, the monastery where I lived and where I studied, the teacher there would talk about forcing people to nail jello to the wall. So a hater comes at me Generally, as far as I can tell, 
And they want basically something very simple. They want to feel powerful. They want to see the look in my eyes that they got me or, uh, you know, it can manifest in a lot of ways. They want me to fight back. They, They just want to feel that they have power. And if you don't let them feel that, they will flail in my experience. So the nailing jello to the wall, jello is you in the metaphor, and the hammer and nail is held by the hater trying to pin you down into hating them back. And you don't have to be like sunshine and roses and cat videos back to them. But you also don't have to empower them to get what they want. It's like, it's like I don't know if jujitsu is the right word for it because I don't know a damn thing about jujitsu. But like when somebody, when somebody is insulting or aggressive, you can be like, oh, huh, never, never looked at it that way. Uh, I see that. I see how you could see that. You know, that, that light sort of tone as opposed to how dare you and you're, you don't know anything about me. It just sort of avoid the fight by letting it just pass you by in a way. Can I share something? Yeah. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Um, You made me think about boundaries and I just got so excited because I've realized recently boundaries are almost always internal. Meaning how I'm going to treat someone externally just becomes crystal clear after I've become internally clear about what I'm doing, what I want. So an example would be, you mentioned I went on conservative cable news And I was asked at one point, do you still have your manhood? That's a direct quote. (laughs) Uh, Lovely question to ask a trans Mm. person. And I think that host was trying to feel powerful again and trying to get a reaction or however you want to phrase that. And to cut through that, I said, do you mean, do I have a penis? Yes. Right? Just diffusing what that interviewer was trying to do, but also attempting to be ultra-inclusive. So instead of saying, you can't ask me anything like that, right? It's true, you shouldn't ask a trans person like that, anything like that. But in that exact moment, I also wanted to send the signal that there are no stupid questions, right? As we say in the business, there's no way to approach Jeffrey where Jeffrey will not accept your dignity. (laughs) I'm talking about myself in the third person, where I will not accept your dignity, even if I'm holding a boundary. You had a client who said, seeing the best in people was incompatible with creating and holding boundaries. And you said, holding boundaries is seeing the best in people. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean in that particular interview, to keep that as our example, on conservative cable news, my boundary was I am here to talk about love. Not the best, not the easiest environment to do so. but I am here to talk about love. And 
to me, that was an invitation for the host to join me. Dennis, that's his name. That was an invitation for Dennis to join me. And that was me seeing the best, seeing the potential in Dennis to come right along. And can I tell you something? I never have told anybody this on earth. I was there to talk about the book and to talk about love. And I sold a ton of copies of the book. And, oh my gosh, something I almost never get to talk about. About a third of my followers on social media are self-identified conservatives. So even though I think I'm ultra left, not think, I am pretty ultra left, there is also something about what I do, if I can brag a little bit, that transcends the division. And I think it is holding that boundary and inviting people to step up into you know, where me and my my family of followers are. When we get back. If I could go into a time machine and talk to young Jeffrey, I'd say you were right. You were the one who knew that love is the answer. We'll continue the conversation with Jeffrey Marsh. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, I'm talking with Jeffrey Marsh. They're one of the world's foremost experts on non-binary identities, a Zen Buddhist student and teacher, and they're the author of How to Be You, Stop Trying to Be Someone Else, and Start Living Your Life. When we left off, we were talking about boundaries. Jeffrey said that they view boundaries as seeing the potential in other human beings, giving them the gift of you seeing the best in them, and it's explicit in a way that's subtle. And it's actually not punitive. It's not mean. It's not selfish. And it's actually not um, like pompous or self-centered. Someone doesn't have to quote unquote agree with me in order to step into a place where they can recognize someone else's boundary is important. People get tripped up. You think that you have to agree or see the logic behind a boundary in order to honor it? Absolutely not. Someone gives you a boundary and you disagree with it. As far as I can tell, your choice is to honor the boundary anyway and hopefully gain more understanding or not be in relationship with that person. And maybe the formation, the creation, the birth of this boundary being articulated is also a really good example to people about how it's done. So maybe you've never, ever known what a boundary was or what it sounds like or what it feels like to be up against it or to cross it. And when you see other people do it, when you demonstrate it, maybe you'll get better at doing it yourself. Yeah. Isn't that something? We try to do spiritual growth perfectly. And it's nearly impossible to do that. And it actually just derails you and makes you want to give up. 
in my experience. If you've ne- if your parents steamrolled all over your boundaries and you learned that you know you don't have a lock on your door, you don't have you know when you were a kid, if they could just do whatever to you <laughs> and may have done whatever to you, you know if that happened to you, you're not going to be good at it. You're going to stumble, fumble, and what's a word that rhymes with stumble and fumble? <laughs> you're going to stumble, fumble, and bumble your way Ma- around boundaries all the time. And that's okay. You're learning. You don't need to hold yourself to a standard of perfection. What a concept. What a concept. My (laughs) goodness. Honestly, I hear you say that. And I think like, well, of course, you know, as a human animal, we're never going to be perfect. And when I when he again, when you say it out loud, it's like, well, of course, but there is this running narrative, this drive, this engine to achieve some level of perfection even though perfection will change its definition depending on what your life is like and what you want and who you are and it's like this constant pushing and pulling and then you die yes i mean i'll give you a clue perfection will always morph into the thing you have not done damn it doesn't work if you actually woke up one day and did something perfectly. It wouldn't be perfection anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> moving moving goalposts. That's it. That's it. Moving goalposts. You you look back, as you've talked about, you look back at what you've achieved, what you've gotten, you know, the, the cool things that have happened, the cool things you've accomplished. And yo, that was that was good. I'm glad that that happened, but that hasn't removed my desire to do more. It never will. From what I understand about non-attachment, since you talked about it before. We'll come back to you crying on your radio (laughs) show. It is almost the opposite of a spiritual standard. Everything we love is going to be separated from us. Yes. I cannot think of an instance where that's not true. And the fact that people translate that into a standard where they are not supposed to care. That seems pretty dangerous to me. How do you draw that line between attachment and amount of care? Like, what's the distinction? Uh, I, d- I never really considered it. Honestly, my life improved a bajillion times over when I not only allowed, but celebrated, encouraged, opened the floodgates of care for myself. And ironically, that kind of helps with non-attachment because I care so much that it's okay. Hmm. So like you care so much that it's okay when it goes? Yeah, now we'll take a non, a less charged example I drop my favorite mug and it breaks into a million pieces. Well, if I allow myself to grieve, to love, to care, right? That to me is is a form of non-attachment. Because it's only when I'm not allowed, when I have to be perfectly practicing non-attachment um, that it's just torture and suffering, really. Yeah, that's one thing that I've been wrapping my head around uh, 
with this divorce, I've been feeling for the first time in my life, like my feelings are bigger than me. Like there was a point at which I, I truly felt like my feelings were going to swallow me whole. Like this is how I die. What happened to Kyone? She was killed by her emotions. She was nobody ever saw her again because they <laughs> swallowed her into this ether. But I'm I'm realizing the power of not only respecting them and being with them and feeling them, but also reminding myself that every feeling has come and gone, and these will come and go. And so when you talk about your mug shattering into a million pieces. Well, that's an opportunity to feel that sadness because you loved that mug. And that sadness is part of the whole story of that mug. And then you get to let that feeling pass through. Yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about your wife like a mug. Um, <laughs> when you say mug, you mean mug. Let's be very clear. <laughs> I mean, not that would... <laughs> Yeah, it's such a thing of beauty. And I'm reminded that you know, people wrote down, quote unquote, what the Buddha said hundreds of years after the Buddha was alive. So who knows? But supposedly, one of the things that the Buddha talked about was old age, sickness, and death. And that the luckiest humans encounter those in that order. There is something, you know, Zen, the, the kind that I studied, is often called the religion of death. And it's because, not that we worship death, but that we're constantly keeping it in mind. Because it really keeps a lot of stuff in perspective. Yeah, I was listening to a talk on Sam Harris's app, Waking Up. They were talking about how the idea of every step keeping in mind your own death with each step, with each breath, <laughs> with each moment. And um, I love thinking about death. I think it's it exposes a lot when you really spend time thinking about it, let alone experiencing it happen to people you love. But after I heard about that, I was thinking about, I walked into my backyard and now like this whole house and this whole property is full of different emotions because my wife is leaving. And it was the backyard, it was the path where we got married. I would take a step and I would go, step, death, step, death. And while it doesn't seem on the surface to be a comforting thing to do, it actually brought me a great deal of comfort and perspective. How so? <laughs> it doesn't minimize the many feelings I'm going through but it does give me a bit of context in terms of these feelings will too have a, an ending and the joy that all experience will have an ending and everything in between, although that's a binary way to see it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> sorrow and joy. But um, thinking about death gives me this appreciation for the size of what I'm feeling now. Yeah, for life, in other words. I find that to be the case as well. And I'll tell you, I love my husband. I love a lot of people. Um, I love what I do. I just have a lot of love in my life. And I'm not afraid of death. I think it would be sad to leave those things is why I was, was bringing that up. 
But the reason I'm not afraid of death is that I know how I want to do it. Not the specifics of, of, you know, what the end of my life will be like, but I know how I want to be with myself as I try that new thing. Does that sound weird? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. There's a death doula named Elua Arthur in LA, Going With Grace is, is her organization, and she talks a lot about that final moment in her own life, what she hopes what she hopes for in terms of what it'll be like. But the opportunity to have that experience, to go through that as, as, as exciting. And I think that's not the way that we are programmed in our society lately. It's very weird, but I'm going to find out something I don't know now. <laughs> I'm going to learn it's something. It's thrilling, right? Yeah. So... Something else I want to talk with you about. People love you. People really, really get emotional about you. Uh, I was listening before we talked uh, to your interview with Leanne Rhymes. And she's she's fangirling, and she's she's you know you can tell like she just has this can you reverence that? from you. <laughs> uh, that must have been that I mean that must have been pretty cool. But like testimonials from your talks, comments, of course, on social media, people are saying things like "You saved my life." I'm crying with gratitude. People say stuff like you know I can see I can see clearly now. Uh-huh. Like there's 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 a lot of love for you. How does that feel, especially? I know that's an awfully broad question, but you had a life with a lot of pain in it and you've learned a lot and you've grown so much, but now you are in front of a massive audience. And it's not that people are just interested and they're clicking like, but they're so emotional. And I just, I wonder what that's like for you. It's vindication. <laughs> Wait, weren't we just talking about like praise and <laughs> and punishment? But yeah, that's no. Like- a lot of interviewers who are not on your level of expertise, let's face it, a lot of interviewers ask me, "What would you tell your younger self?" And if I could go into a time machine and talk to young Jeffrey, eleven-year-old Jeffrey, say, I'd say you were right. Thank you. You know, interviewers are expecting me to say like, well, I would say, mm, there's nothing wrong with you, Jeffrey, and and um, the way you are is so great. No, 11-year-old Jeffrey knew that and knew that everybody else was kind of like being hateful and weird about it, but knew that the spirit was so important. You know, in that way that young people are just crystal clear sometimes on the truth And so if I could speak to my younger self, I would say, thank you. You knew. I went away for years after that and tried not to be who I am. I tried to hide. I tried to make it palatable. I tried to please everybody. But you were the the one who knew that love is the answer. And, you know, I was going to say not to get too deep, but this is the place to get deep. The world tried to beat that out of me in more ways than one. The idea that love is the answer. My life was very violent because I knew that truth and was willing to say it. And so now I feel like, yes, everybody, get on board. (laughs) You don't want any other 11-year-old to be 
shoved down. Yeah. And listen to the 11-year-olds in your life. Yeah, that's a good point. Listen to the ones who are innocent, who know that love is the answer. And those who are furthest from positions of power can often see things yeah. the most clearly. Yes. In your videos, you say, I love you a lot. And every time I hear you say it, I feel it. And so I'm really honored to take the opportunity to say that I love you too. I love you. There you go. You got your personal I love you. <laughs> we love each other. I guess that means we're lucky. Don't you think? Jeffrey Marsh, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Do yourself a favor and join close to a million other people who learn something new from Jeffrey every day on their social medias. They're at the Jeffrey Marsh. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like why your ideas about testosterone, pain, and brown recluse spiders may be very wrong, and what it's like for two women who wholeheartedly regret having children. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for leaving that review on Apple Podcasts, like this one from Russ Love G2, rare and wonderful. Kion and the team explore the fringes of our minds, our behaviors, and our beliefs with quiet intelligence and unusual insight. In a jabbering sea, an isle of wonder. As you can tell from this episode, moral support's going a particularly long way with me lately, so thank you for that very generous review, Russ Love G2. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.